Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Arlen Schumer is an award-winning comic book style illustrator for the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators, an author, designer of the copy table art books, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for Best Publisher or Popular Culture Book. He's a recognized expert on American pop culture, especially the legendary television series The Twilight Zone and the music of Bruce Springsteen. Presenting his visual lectures on these and other subjects at major universities and cultural institutions across the country and around the world, Arlen Schumer, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? Richard, I'm great, and thanks for having me on, and it's nice to talk to you again. Yes, likewise. My pleasure. So I mentioned uh, earlier on in the show about how the trajectory of your life really was changed uh, by watching The Twilight Zone. And I, I, I believe you, when we talked last, you said, in fact, it was probably your very first memory. Tell me about that. Well, it's one of my very first visual memories. It was the black and white um, eyeball hanging in outer space, which um, began in January of 1963. I was four and a half years old. And it's just my first visual memory, that eyeball. And everybody that's seen that opening knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's one of the most significant images in all of surrealism and art itself. I mean, the eye, the word video means I see. So, you know, you combine that all. And look, I became an artist and on my coffee table art book, Visions from the Twilight Zone, underneath the dust jacket, I embossed in white on the black cloth, the Twilight Zone eyeball. So I paid it forward, so to speak. Right, right. And that book, that wonderful coffee table book that came out, what, almost 30 years ago? Yeah. Uh, that, w- that was the first first book to be licensed by the TV show to reproduce a lot of the artwork and so forth, correct? Well, not really artwork, just the use of the photographic images. Right, Even right, though images. this gets into the gray area of fair use, my manipulation of the copyrighted material by treating it as a coffee table art book, by treating those images like black and white art photography and adding text that is critical and analyzes the art and discusses it qualifies as fair use. But in the real world of publishing, you need to get CBS to sign off on a book about the Twilight Zone for sale. Is that book even available now? It's out of print, but you can still find through um, Amazon because they're linked to the secondhand book sites. You could still find the soft covers and the hard covers. The hard covers were more of a limited edition, and it's probably more expensive. But like I said, just for the embossed eyeball is worth the price of admission. You know what I mean? Right, right. How did how did the Twilight Zone influence you as a, as an illustrator? Well, really, just. Partly as an, as, as an artist, I mean, I ended up making my living mostly as, as an illustrator, but it's really the, the concepts of Serling and company, you know, the other writers, the directors, the actors, those episodes themselves, and not having a father of my own because my mother was a widow. My father died when I was four months old. So Serling, when I look back on it, as I became older, realized was one of my sort of pop culture surrogate father figures and the, the his very moralistic stance in those episodes in his words in those introductions were so powerful that he 
became one of my father figures. And if you look at the work I've done with the Twilight Zone, which was his magnum opus, and the things I've done with it, the lectures, the books, the, the um, uh, you know, treating the images and the words themselves like poetry, like art, I've done what I imagine a father would do, a son would do to honor his father. So when I tongue-in-cheek call myself the son Serling never had, I mean, he had two adult daughters that are a couple of years older than me. I, I, I'm almost the age I could have been his son, but uh, I've treated his work like a son would honor his father's work. Tell me about his his influences. I mean, he was he would have been a child of radio, right? Growing up in the 30s and the 40s. Yeah, and he started out his career after he got out of the war writing for radio in Cincinnati. But then through connections or whatever, he ended up at the dawn of the television industry in New York City in the mid-50s. And it was through writing for live television, those 90-minute you know, uh, uh, dramas that won him those Emmys that gave him the creative clout to be the first creative person to be handed a television show at the dawn of the 1960s with Twilight Zone. You know, we take for granted now people like David Chase and Michael E. Kelly and, you know, the people that run these, you know, we're in a golden age of television now ever since, you know, you can say The Sopranos, where you've got creators like Matthew Weiner, you know, with Mad Men, that, you know, run the show. They own their show. But Sterling was the first of all of them. And that's why he was able to do The Twilight Zone, was because of the creative cloud from winning three Emmys in a row in the late, you know, mid to late 50s. How much of an influence were other sort of earlier uh, TV shows uh, like Tales of Tomorrow or Science Fiction Theater... Uh, the Weird Circle, things like that. Well, that was a radio program, but Dimension you know, X, sir, those listen, types of programs, did they have an influence? Science fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror. He read, you know, everybody from Edgar Allan Poe to, you know, um, uh, what's his name, H.G. Uh, Wells, and, you know, everything. He read, he read science fiction college. Some of the greatest Swanson episodes are kind of, um, you know, sort of under-the-table adaptations of E.C., science fiction comics from the early 1950s. I do a whole lecture on that called Comic Books in the Twilight Zone. But the point is, is Serling, Serling, Serling's achievement was he took from the fields of science fiction and fantasy that, you know, in the early 20th century were really just a large cult. But by bringing them to this new medium of American television, some of the greatest episodes that Serling wrote were adaptations. He was a master adapter of so many of those science fiction short stories from the pulp novels, from, you know, 50s science fiction, that again, science fiction was not a respected form of literature back then. It was like a, a cult of literature. And in fact, all the science fiction writers in which came, um, you know, Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, they were this cloistered little group of L.A. writers. And they saw Sterling as almost a dilettante that came in to cherry-pick their wares. But what Sterling did, his achievement was taking these cloistered, cultish works. Sterling didn't invent time travel. He didn't invent other dimensions or alternate worlds. All those things were in science fiction and fantasy that preceded him. But by adapting them for television in what were essentially two-act plays, 
filmed for television and his use of dialogue and the way he was able to tell a terse, taught story in 25 minutes filled with philosophical meaning and existential and surreal aspects that we're still discussing 60 years later. That, he created television art. And that's what I talk about and promote and teach and do webinars about and everything else. So tell me about his, his, his early battles with, with sponsors and censors because he had a real sense of justice in the end. You know, they, they tried to control his message. So I guess, is that why he used science fiction as sort of cover so that he could tell those, those stories about justice and things without sort of tipping off the censors? You know, we just came through the whole Black Lives Matter movement and everything. And that, you know, all that comes back to the Emmett Till incident in 1955 was why Rosa Parks did not give up her seat. She was thinking about Emmett Till. Sterling tried to write one of those 90-minute live television productions about the Emmett Till case. And in those days, television was owned by the sponsors. You know, ad executives were running television shows. No, no creative people made the top decisions. And the advertisers had so much input into the content of the shows that Serling, you know, called the angry young man of television, had to fight tooth and nail. And by the time his Emmett Till-type drama made it to the air, it was about some Texas incident in which they lynch a Mexican or something like that. Everything about the fact that it was a, a racial murder of a young black kid from Chicago that was in Mississippi or where, where I think where it happened in Mississippi um, was removed. And it was fights like that, that made Serling that he did this play, you know, they were called, you know, teleplays uh, um, Serling was called a television playwright. That's how they were respected by the critics. Um, and then um, he did something called The Arena, which was about politics. And again, it was so denuded and declawed by the censors and the sponsors that Serling reasoned, and I think this is a quote from him, that, gee, I would have had just as meaningful a drama if I had people to Senate with robots instead of real people. And out of his love for science fiction fantasy, he did the show The Time Element. That was a one-hour show um, sponsored by Desilu. It was, you know, Lucy and Desi promoted The Time Element. And that aired in 1958 and got so much positive response, ratings, and mail that, you know, CBS had never gotten. Again, television was a young medium still in 1958. That they basically went to Serling and said, you know, can you turn the time element into a TV series? And that's how the Twilight Zone happened. Was there any consideration ever to, to filming in, in color, and was Serling resistant to that? Well, I don't know if Serling was resistant to it, because as the story goes that I heard it directly from George T. Clemens, the Emmy-winning cinematographer or television cinematographer, whatever the term is, for the Twilight Zone, the beautiful black and white look. 
is because George C. Clemens came out of retirement to do The Twilight Zone. He had been, like a lot of the Hollywood craftsmen that worked on The Twilight Zone, he had been, you know, a storied Hollywood craftsman for years. I think he did the, uh, the lighting to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1939. But the point is, is he told me, and I quoted this in my book, Visions from the Twilight Zone, that there was pressure early on Sterling to turn the show into color. Now, remember, color didn't really happen until the Batman TV show in 66. Most shows up to and including 1965 were still shot in black and white. But 65, 66 is where you start to see color introduced. So Twilight Zone was already off the air by 1964. So they must have wanted to use Twilight Zone to experiment on. And according to George D. Clemens, he responded vehemently to the idea of turning the Twilight Zone into color. And he said to Serling, we can't give you the Twilight Zone feeling in color like we can in black and white. And Richard, that statement alone, this is a Hollywood craftsman. These guys didn't think of themselves as artists, like we call them. To them, there's so much in that statement from a classic Hollywood craftsman. What he meant was, was exactly what I lecture and, and, and talk about and, and teach through webinars, is that the Twilight Zone feeling is black and white. It's the middle ground between light and shadow between life and death, between the past and the future. It is a black and white and all those grays concept. And Clemens understood that viscerally as a classic Hollywood craftsman. So whether Serling would have given in or not and made the show color, but we have George Clemens probably to thank for keeping it in black and white. And every remake, Richard, of The Twilight Zone, starting with the 1983 Spielberg movie, has been in color. And to me, it misses the boat at the dock, you know, right, right out of the gate. I'm using every sports cliche for, uh, you know, <laughs> screwing it up right in the beginning. Because they're not understanding what Clemens said, that these stories deserve to be in beautiful black and white. But I know the Hollywood bean counters, you know, oh, young people won't accept black and white. You know, Meanwhile, you know, there's still creative videos shot in black and white, creative commercials. Didn't the movie The Artist win Best Picture five, seven years ago, whenever that was? Yes, and that yes. Was shot in black and white. I mean, this idea that young people, imagine they're told something on TV is great, is brilliant, but it's in black and white. You, you really think they're not going to watch it if they're told it's great, but it's in black and white? And yet... Every remake's been in color, and to me, they've all sucked, all of them. In terms of the writing, and I know, I think there was something like 156 episodes. How many exactly. of those did Serling? Exactly. Yeah. How many did he write? Uh, 90-something, 93, 96, something like that. He wrote what I call the best of the Twilight Zone episodes, and he wrote some of the worst. You know, I'm very critical when it comes oh. to the Twilight Zone. But... Um, Right, right. Yeah, Serling wrote the book to them. I think that was part of his contract with the network, was that he, he was being hired because of his three Emmy-winning television playwright status. So I think, they, I think it was part of the contract. But I don't know that level of trivial detail about the show. Because, I mean, to, to be the creative force behind it, 
And then also to be writing to that extent, I, I read a quote once where he talked about how, you know, he was working seven days a week, 24 hours yep. a day. If he, yep. if he had to bend over to pick up a pencil, he'd be five days behind. Yep. And, you know, it shows in, like I said, I'm very, let me just state this up front. Out of the 156 episodes, I think half of them are dogs. But that leaves 75 episodes. I think 50 of those are what I call good to great television. And obviously, there's a lot of range there. But then there's 25 half hours that I would give to the aliens if they beamed down in front of me and said they had room on their spaceship for one, you know, Earth television show. I'm giving them those 25 half hours. I'm not giving them The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or Seinfeld or I Love Lucy. I'm giving them those 25 half hours. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.